Oh, the shame that will get if you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33, the football happy hour here in Off The Ball. We've got an hour of coaching talk coming your way on the show. Jim McGuinness is being linked with the Dundalk job to the disdain of proper football men all over the place, but I'll speak to someone who has actually watched his games and analysed his games at Charlotte Independence. That's Stephen Finn. Let the Players Play is the name of the book we're going to be discussing on the show this evening. It's by Larry Mahoney, who has been a grassroots coach since, well, since Roy Keane and the Fast Courses existed. Larry, you're very welcome along. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So we're we're talking about your book, Let's Let the Players Play. So before we get into it, can you give me a synopsis of the book? What's it about? Why did you write it? And uh, what what are you hoping to aim for for the book, essentially? Well, basically, it's a book for grassroots coaches, and it's it like there are a lot of books for grassroots coaches now. I sort of approached it from two different angles. Number one, the the book is about coaching in the game, so we're only talking about how you can affect players as they play games. So what we've done is, you know, we've broken it down into the smallest possible games: two against two, three against three, and four against four. So that was one. That was one reason for coming to, to it because over the years I worked. I worked a, a fairly long period of time on the coach education in the in the FAI, and I always found that the actual coaches could be really, really proficient and really good at putting drills on and putting practices on. But when it came to actually coaching in the game, they found that the hardest. So that's the hardest part of coaching. It definitely is because the picture is changing. Players are moving around. So that's the first thing was was to specifically address coaching in the game. Now, the other angle that I've come from is is very much a man of my generation looking at this generation and seeing the way things are. What I see at the moment is because of the Internet, because the Internet is such a great learning tool. What I see at the moment is that, you know, most coaches or coaches who are interested in coaching will go to the Internet and will use YouTube as a source for their training material. And now the problem with that is, what I see now is, you see lots and lots of schoolboy and schoolgirl, grassroots coaches, and they're going to the internet for information, which is great, but they're looking at Pep Guardiola, doing something with Pep Guardiola's players. They're, lo- they're looking at the Barcelona players, and they're trying to bring this back down. They're trying to bring the same type of work back down to the grassroots. Now, that doesn't work. Okay. Now, I won't say this is a particularly modern phenomenon uh, of adults complicating the game for for kids, because adults have always complicated the game for kids. But I really, really think now that it's really, really exploded in terms of what what adults expect kids to do in training for football. Okay. So you're you're looking at uh, I've seen <laughs> the example I always give. I've seen an under eleven South Dublin game being videoed for analysis <laughs> okay so it's a, so like i said it's a helpful coach to coach in the game and it's a kickback 
against the overcomplicating of the game now. It, the effort, it's an effort to teach coaches, to, for, to help coaches to be able to pare down the game and the coaching in the game to what's needed and just what's needed. Yeah, <laughs> nothing, no, none of the Pep Guardiola still, for want of a better term. Yeah, there's there's quite a few uh, Pep Guardiola, um, I don't know what, what would you call it, doppelgangers in one, in, one of the, well, doppelganger. Yeah, well, well, I, I think doppelganger would be a Jorgen Klopp one, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's an interesting one that, and it's probably a topic that I can see people texting in on about the standard of coaching, the style of coaching, how you get the best out of elite players versus how you get the best out of normal everyday individual kids. And we're very much talking about kids here because I mean, you move up the levels, you get the Leicester senior league, you get to UCFL, all, all sorts of levels. There's, there's a coach in there that's going to be overcomplicating things, but I suppose we'll, we'll start with the kids and how you develop them and how you tailor your training sessions for everybody, because that's, that's really what it is. And one of the, show that we do here in off the ball is the football pod which is Paddy Andrews and Andy Moran talking about GAA and one thing that stood out for me from Paddy Andrews was talking about when when Jim Gavin took over Dublin they spent three years doing drills that you'd see under eights doing it was passing hand passing moving off the shoulder things like that really really basic things so if that's good enough for Dublin GAA elite then it really should be good enough for an under-8s team in uh, in Ballymun. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of things about that I, I would say about that end, right? I'm all for in the big picture there in terms of simplifying things. Now, when it comes to drills, though, I, I wouldn't be a great believer. And that's one of the points about the book. right? I, I mentioned previously that I, I had worked for the FAI. I'd been a staff coach for the FAI. Right? Now, I was lucky enough to be full-time on the famous FOSS courses, right? The, the FOSS courses of legend where Roy Keane worked, okay? And I always tell, uh, Roy Keane went from our course to Nottingham Forest. And I always tell the story about how that course developed, right? That Morris Price was the senior coach and I was the assistant coach on that. And Morris, Morris, absolutely fantastic coach. But every morning we would go in and we would rack our brains. We would work probably 20 minutes, half an hour to try and think of five, maybe six different activities that we could use during the day to fill in the day. And we went about that. But as the course went on, right, the, we found that the less drills we did right, and the more playing of games we did, the, the quicker the improvement of the players, the more the players improved. And so in terms of drills, I, I think there's a couple of things what you're saying. Like I have a name for, for drills, uh, or the very scientific name for drills. I call it the boring method <laughs> because, you know, the players every now and again, there's a drill that might fire some, some kids' imagination, but generally they, mo- they don't want to do drills. They want to be playing. Um, so we're talking about game type acti- activities, but you actually mentioned under eights. Okay. Now, when I'm talking about working in the games, I'm talking about a stage that's past the under eight stage. Because up to under eight or under ten or, or whatever it is, I, I would be working what you're what you're employing there. I would be working and encouraging coaches to work on individual technique. So from whatever age they start, from four to around ten years of age, right? You would be working specifically on individuals. Now, when adults usually get teams, the usual thing they do. And fair play to them, they get the ball out. Right? And years ago, they might not have got the ball out, but mm-hmm. they'd get the ball out and they'd put two kids passing towards each other. 
And then they'll be scratching their heads at the end of the week on a Saturday when the kids don't pass. And the reason for that is the kids of, of the earlier age groups are not psychologically ready for that. So we can afford as coaches to spend anything up to maybe five seasons purely working on individual technique, working on dribbling skills, turning, touch, keepy-uppies. <laughs> I know some people think, oh, I know my dad would have said to me, oh, that's a waste of time. But what the kids are doing there is developing the most important part of the game, which is their touch. So mm. touch is the basis of all skill. Now, when they reach an age where they are psycho psychologically ready to start passing, that's when we start. Okay, when they're ready to start playing games and training. Now, this is not to say they don't play games for fun. You know, they'll do all the individual stuff in training. They'll play their matches, but the coaching wouldn't would would be done outside of the games. Yeah. So when they reach, and it's usually around under ten, but you always put a condition on that because it will depend on each individual group. So a very very good under nine player can be doing stuff that, for want of a better word, an average under eleven player might not be able to do. But we're talking about in general, in general, you know, your, your ordinary common or garden schoolboy or schoolgirl player around 10 years of age. What's happening, what's happening to those kids in their, in their home life and in their school life is they're being asked to think more of people. They're being asked to look away from themselves. So this is the time then when, when they're ready to do this, this is the time that we start talking about them playing as a team together and actually working on that. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what you hopefully will have coming into that phase, right, when they start doing that, will be uh, players whose touch has been developed. They've had four or five years developing their real, real touch. So then what we're talking about then is how they combine, how, how they make passes, how they see each other. And the big picture in terms of what the, is in the book, big picture is what we're trying to do is help the coaches to help the players make decisions for themselves. We don't want the coaches yelling spread out. We want the players to see the value of spreading out themselves. When they spread out, we want to see, we want the players themselves to see the options that are available to when they spread out. Now, again, how do we do that? We simplify it. We start at the smallest team possible. Okay. And again, we've all heard the story and we've seen seven aside games where there are under nine players playing seven aside game and it's it's just it's a swarm. Okay. Yeah. So what we do is we do the exact opposite. When you're starting to teach the game, now there there's room for letting the kids play seven aside. Usually in our culture, our football culture, at the end of the session we let them play seven aside. But I I do that, but I don't expect them to be doing anything properly in that. That's seven yeah. aside because they want to play what they see in the television. So what do we do? We start off with the smallest possible team, which is two aside. Okay? We, so because it's only two aside, there's only me and there's you on the pitch. Right? So if you come on top of me, I should be able, even as a nine or a ten-year-old, to, to see the logic in the fact that you shouldn't be coming on top of me. So we'd ask the players to read that for themselves. Well, what would it be or, or would it be better if you moved away? Would it be better if you got yourself more space? Where could you get yourself more space? So right from an early age, it's like every other skill. We have to teach them. We have to catch them early. And when they're reaching this level of maturity, this is the earliest you can catch them in terms of making their own decisions and making team decisions rather than individual decisions. Because yeah. up to now, it's all been individual decisions. Mm -hmm. So we ask the players to read the game and make those decisions. Now, in the book, 
hopefully of what I've aimed to do and the ambition of the book is to give the grassroots coach who maybe has never coached before all the things that can happen in that two-on-two game, okay? Now, I'm not stupid. I know somewhere and some 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 astroturf somewhere there'll be a group of 10-year-olds who'll come up with a strange scenario. But I think what I've done is I've given, you know, I can be fairly certain from my own experience that nearly everything that the coach is going to see in that two-on-two game, we give him the tools to sort it out, right? Now, if we give the kid, obviously then by extension, if we give the coach the tools to sort it out, well, then we give the, the, the players the tools to sort it out. Because again, the emphasis on is on making the players think for themselves. And the mistake, you know, and one of the things that's very, very important that we talk about, right, is that you, what you'll often see, you will often see clubs doing the right thing. You will also all, often see kids with the youngest players working on individual technique. And as soon as they get to, as soon as they get to a passing stage, all the dribbling skills and all the individual skills that have gone before are thrown out. It's the classic throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So as soon as passing comes in, dribbling goes out the window. But of course, that's not what we want to happen. So in the individual stages, we're still at a, at a, at a stage where those two players spreading apart are hopefully to give each other space to still dribble and yeah. so on and so on. So when they're good at playing two on two, and this is the perennial co- question that you always heard on coaching courses and coaches always ask me, when do we move them on? And the answer to that, without being glib, is always the same. The answer is always the same. The answer is when they're ready to move on. Because coaches, unfortunately, human nature being what it is, coaches are always in a hurry to rush children to the adult game. right? But what adults need to realize is the children's game is not the adult's game. It's yeah. not the same game. It's a different game. And adults have to learn to be patient. And unfortunately... With young kids, mostly young kids are coached by young people, young adults. And the one thing that young adults are not renowned for, wouldn't be blessed with, would be patience. So they're always, young coaches I see all the time are always in a hurry to get to the A license. They always want to get to the A license stuff. They want to coach the older players because they think they can do the big stuff. They think they can do the gag impressing and the, uh, the low block and the, uh, the counter attack. And that's all the trends now. But what they don't realize is if they do not spend enough time at the basics uh, on the uh, on the building blocks, well, then the players are not going to be capable of doing these things. Yeah. So we add another player then. So, again, this is such a stra- simple strategy, but I've never seen it done formally before. So when they finish playing two-on-two two and they're good at playing two-on-two, two, we only add one player to the mix. We add a third player. So three players learn to spread apart. Three players learn in in... As clear a pos- uh, uh, as clear a picture as possible, the decisions that they can make in that. And again, we're looking for decisions. And at, at this age, the basic tactical decision in football is so simple: it's dribble or pass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's dribble or pass. You know, and adults would like to tell you, and coaches would like to tell you, you know, that it's different, but it's not. It's dribble or pass at that age. Now, what we're trying to do is to spread them apart. For them to see the spaces themselves so that they have the choice of dribbling or passing. So mm-hmm. still at three on three, when you're talking about maybe the under nine or maybe even as far as the under 11 um, age group, again, depending on how good they are, the main attacking tool is still the individual player, is still the dribbler. So we, we've, we've, 
we spent five years on dribbling, right? We're going to spend another two years looking for opportunities to dribble. But on top of that, we're going to teach the players to, to recognize when it might be right to dribble and when it's not right to dribble, when it's right to pass mm-hmm. in terms of the team. Because again, we're talking about now a stage where players have got to start thinking of the team rather than themselves. Yeah, that makes, makes total sense because as you're talking through it there, it's just getting flashbacks of yeah. my underage uh, development. And obviously I'm, I'm, I'm no Lionel Messi. I'm I'm not that great, but when I, was, when, when I was younger, <laughs> well, I just want to make that clear that I'm not yeah. pegging myself up to be anything great. But when I was younger, I was good. When I was under under sixes, under eights, I was good. And there was another couple of players on my team who were good. And we played games and did the, the, the usual uh, blitzes on on a Saturday morning against other sides. And you might come away having scored eight goals in a game because you're an individual yeah. player. And then, but then you're so good at that age that you make the step up and by under 12, you're playing full pitch yeah. as it was back yeah. then. I know they don't play full pitch now, but when, when I was there, you're playing full pitch and you realize very quickly, it's not the same you're game. Not gonna, you are not going to be able to run the pitch no. here by yourself, but you ha- like, I, I could barely kick the ball five, six, seven yards when I got to the byline, if I wanted to cross it in yeah. and it always ended up the same thing. It would get past the player. No problem go to pass the ball, can't do it, or there was n- nobody on. So it's, it, it's an interesting thing, and it definitely, I think it will uh, resonate with a lot of people. In terms of those blitzes, and this is something that probably will be asked about this, so you're talking under 11, still maybe potentially only three, four side. How do you... No, under 11 that? now in most leagues, and it will probably be up to seven aside. So no, in, in, your, in your, like in, in your, when you're talking about when you're, training them oh, so sorry when you're trying yeah no, yeah so no. so how do you incorporate that with the, you the don't. or actual you, game time you, you, you don't you mark it you mark two pitches out instead of playing two for instead of playing an eight soy game and train you play two four soy games and train right but but at the end you know there, there's no problem with doing that there's no tr- problem with playing the big game as long as coaches realize that in that game you're not going to see much of what you've done previously and you've got, okay. again, it, it, again, we come back to the patience thing. You know, throw them into the seven aside game. You've got what you're looking to see in the seven aside game is little glimpses of what you've seen. So I have a little saying with the kids when we do two aside, and I know, I know this is very individual and all that. You know, I, I, I shouted a little kid. Well, shout is a strong word. I say to the kids, stay out of his garden. Don't go in his garden. You know, so that's in two aside. So in other words, one stays on one side and one stays on the yeah. other. Okay. So all I'm looking for them when they play the seven aside is for t- no two players to be in the same garden, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So that's all I'm looking for because that's all we've covered in the games. So don't expect a miracle that because you've worked on two on two that it's going to, it's going to translate, but eventually it will. And I tell you why it will, because again, in terms of the book, as far as the book goes, when we go to the four side, okay? Now, when I'm talking four side, I'm talking about four outfield players. When we go to the four side, We've basically got the pitch covered because by the time we've come to far side, we have a front player who's come in in the three on three. We've a right side, we've a, re- a, le- a, le- a right side, a left side, but we also have the four player playing at the base of a diamond. So in other words, you have four players in a, in a diamond shape. Okay. Now what we're saying and what 
in terms of coaching and being able to coach properly and being able to shift from the smaller game to the big game is the ability then to just to fit those diamonds into a bigger game. So if you think about it, and, and I know this might be a little bit difficult just, just to picture it in your head, but if we're playing seven aside, right? So if we if, if we say, for example, have two players at the back and one of those players are on the ball, right? He'll want someone on his right hand side, he'll want someone on his left, and he'll want someone ahead of him up front. So there's your diamond. There's the diamond that you've done in four aside, gone into seven aside. Now, when you go to the nine aside, when the, those kids move to the nine aside, there's two diamonds. There's a diamond on the left, there's a diamond on the right. So we're, we're, we're fitting this shape. And what we're doing in the far side is teaching these, for, and I hate to use this this early, but we're, what we're doing is we're teaching positions by stealth. We're not calling them these positions. Okay? So anyone who's on the side, we're not saying he's a wide player per se, because we want them all to play in all the different positions. But yeah. they will be able to play as a wide player in the seven aside. They will be able to play as a front player in the seven side, and they'll be able to play as one of those central support players because they've learned that in the four side. So the shift into the big game then, right, is relatively simple because you always hear, again, you always hear coaches worrying about when they're going to the big game. But if they've done the work in the small games, the, the, the shift to the big games isn't that difficult. Yeah. So, so that's the thing. So the four side is very important, but don't forget, again, the patience thing again. By the time... I have got to working on the support midfield players. I call them the playmaker. Now, people will have different definitions of the playmaker. But I want young players to think that way. Midfield players to think as being creative players. Like young kids come to me, I, I, you know, young kids come to me and say, I'm a DM. Right? <laughs> now, I finally realized what a DM is. But the first time I heard a kid saying that, I didn't know what he was talking about. So we want all those players who are playing in that in that back support position to be able to do everything. And I know, I know the great John Joyles. This is this is a, a recurring theme with him. You know, midfielders should be able to do everything. They should be able to play. And I would, I would be well. I'd be a little little younger, you know. But I'd be of the generation when we where we wanted all our midfielders to be able to play, right? That there would be no defensive midfielders at this age. That they would all be able to attack. They would all be able to attack in a creative way in terms of. Support and playing, and then being able to do their own little bit when they when they get into the other teams' half and do that. But yeah. the point I was going to make, I, I I drifted away from that. This is two years. We've spent two years on this. These kids are older now by the time they come into that. So we've done. You know, again, your common or garden average schoolboy team. In my experience, the work that's in the book is two seasons work. So they're two years older now. They're twelve. You know, so. Understanding going into seven aside for those kids and then moving up to nine aside, if they've done the work in the smaller games, it should be quite simple then for them. Yeah. And again, again, as they move up the age groups, we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because this people are talking, you know, again, this the whole internet thing, everyone knows about Pep Guardiola's inverted fullbacks, and everyone knows about the false nine now. There, there was a time only coaches talked in those terms, yeah, yeah, yeah. but everyone knows about them now. They're all talking about them, you know? But, yeah, with... but I don't know how many games I see that are decided not by inverted fullbacks, but by individual ability, by forward players being able to get them. But look at the... I know we're, we're talking, we're taking examples here. Look at the goal Phil Foden scored last week, where he got the ball on the left side on, on, on the halfway line, and he dribbled all the way and scored. 
But you watch, you watch the games. You see how many goals you would say, oh, my God, that, that was a lovely rotation between those midfield players. <laughs> or how many goals you say, God, that was a brilliant turn. Or, or, or that was a brilliant burst of pace. Or that was a brilliant true ball. Or that was a brilliant chip. There's a lot more of them than you'll say, that was fantastic rotation. That was yeah. a fantastic overlap, you know. Individual yeah. skill still wins games. But I, I think what happens, right, I think what happens is, like, I, I know I keep repeating myself, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Because I tell you why, and people are saying that we don't have creative players. I walk in the schools, right, and I go into the schools all the time. And in every school, there are fantastic players. Every school has, a, has one of those little guys who can get the ball and beat everyone else in the class. Every class is one of them. So let's say every school has five of them. Right? There's 900 primary schools in the country. Right? So there's over... You do the sums. You, you'll be better and you'll be better at doing the Trust sums. Trust me, I'm no good with math, but there's a lot. There's a but lot. There's a there's lot, lot of creative players. Yeah. And what happens is, right, we are not a country that places an emphasis. Right? We've came very much in terms of football, and I know some people won't like to hear this, but we come from British stock in terms of football. So the creative player... Right, the who might be a little bit, uh, a little bit fragile mentally or a little bit artistic, he gets dropped. <laughs> he doesn't play, right? Mm. And we don't shape our team to suit that player. And eventually, those players are squeezed out of the game. Now, of course, there are exceptions, right? There are exceptions. There are the Wes Hulahans. But how many Wes Hulahans have we had over the last few years? So you know, if we can educate coaches to keep the players playing. For want of a better term, and I, I use this term all the time. I want my players to play like boys or, or girls. I want them to play with that freedom. I want them to play with the with you know the sort of. I wouldn't go as far as to say off the cuff because you don't really want people playing off the cuff, but with the same exhilaration and, and the same verve that they have when they're kids. Yeah. Instead yeah, of yeah. all this tactical thing. Now I see coaches. Now I see the under thirteen national league and i see some fantastic players but i see the coaches with an obsession on formations you know they're obsessed with formations they're they're obsessed on rotating players between one position and the other and dropping into this hole and the half space and all this whereas with those players i think the emphasis should be on individual skill and on combination play with their players creative combination play in terms of one twos and overlaps crossovers because what we tend to forget in this country right when those players reach a certain age, the majority of our really, really good players, they go to England. They're finished off by the English clubs. Yeah. So sometimes, and I, I wouldn't be a great defender of the FAI, don't get me wrong about this, but sometimes I, I, I listen to people criticising the FAI for the lack of creative players in the international team. But the players in the international team have spent at least, at least six years in the English system, with very, very rare exceptions. So it's yeah. the English clubs yeah. who who are polishing them off, for want of a better term. But mm -hmm. if we can, if we if we can make sure that the whole standard of everywhere, all the players, all the clubs, are, are playing a, 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 in a different way, but a more individual skills based, right, and then creative movement based way. Now, it doesn't matter then what formation they end up getting put in when they're, play when they're senior players because we've taught them to read the game. We've taught them to read their positional relationships between each other 
rather than saying you're a ten number ten and I'm a number nine and the nine and ten will will rotate and we'll try and chip the number ten in rather than doing that I I think there's a way to do it. This guy carve. Carvalho or Carvalho, the guy who used to manage Swansea. There's a little bit of a buzz on the internet because I do look at all the coaches and stuff on the internet, you know. There's a little buzz about him because he's saying, well, we're not, he's back over in Portugal with some team and he's talking, well, we're not playing positions. We're teaching the players to react off each other, right? And people are going on as if this is a new idea. Yeah. yeah <laughs> this is not a new idea, right? Yeah, it, we want the players to be able to play in a skillful way by making the decisions themselves, by not being put in predetermined positions. That's what we want to produce. So when yeah. those players go away, whatever system they're being put into, they're capable of adapting to that system. right? And then when they come back and play for our, for, for our, our, our international teams, the same thing. They can play whatever system Stephen Kenny or Jim Crawford or whoever wants them to play. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but <laughs> it starts at the very bottom. It has to start at the very bottom, you know? Well, it's sort of like the guitarist who learns in his teens, but only learns how to play songs. And yeah. then when they go to move up to a more adva- advanced level, exactly. they'll realize that they haven't done the theory behind it. Don't, so tell, really me jazz, don't it. tell me you're a jazz fan. And I'm that not, sounds I'm not, very much like jazz talk to I'm, me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be a massive jazz man, but no, I, I no, understand, no. The, uh, understand the work that goes in behind it. But it's the basic same theory. If you don't yeah. do if you don't understand why you're doing something, then it's more difficult to understand where you're going wrong uh, further on. I do want to ask you about a couple of things before we, we bring this to an end. One thing, and it's an obvious one that stands out is parents. Yeah. What do you do about sideline parents who are, who are the the Pep Guardiola type who think they know more than the coach who are butting in and sending texts? Cause there's tons of examples of people, coaches who are volunteers quitting because they can't take the sideline parents anymore. We, so how we, do you deal with that? We, for years, when I worked on the coaching courses, right, in, in, once we moved on to B license and A license stuff, we were always talking about this. And we did formal sessions on communication. And we always said the same thing. And it was always, a, it, it, some coaches would think it was always an easy answer. Okay, In terms of communication with parents especially, and I know you've heard this before, right? The pre-season meeting with the parents will lay the ground rules for the rest of the season. Okay, so in that pre-season meeting, right, the parents must be told what their role is, what the coach's role is, in no uncertain terms. Right. So if a player, if a parent wants his child to play on my team, that parent must behave in a way that that team wants them to behave. So in other words, they're told that, it, 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 again, I know it seems like an easy answer, but at the start of the season, which are meeting at the start of the season, it must be laid down. These are the rules. And a lot of clubs now are, are, are actually drawn up, putting it on paper now. These are the contracts. These, this is the code of behaviour from everyone. This is how we want our players to behave. This is how we expect our coaches to behave. But most importantly included in that are the parents. Because a lot of – now, there was an old – there was a, a, a day – where we would say, get rid of them, <laughs> right? The parents, right? Tell them, tell them to shut up, right? But we realise now that, like, the, in terms of your players, and and I'm broadening this out a little bit, but most important in, in terms of players, what players do well and what players don't do well is their mental qualities, 
right? And the people who shape their mental qualities are their parents, right? So you can't discard the parents, but the parents need to be on board. The parents need to know what the plan is. The parents need to know what the values of the team are, the, but, and they must know in terms of coaching what we're doing. Look, this is what we're doing. I remember when I first started, I lived in Arklow now. I, li- I live, I'm a refugee from Dublin down in Arklow. But, right, so when I first started down here, it, it, I came down and I had a good schoolboy team. I was lucky with the team that I ended up. A young guy who's doing really, really well at the moment in the, in the National League, Liam Scales with Shamrock Rovers, was on that team. So when we first, when when I first got them at under nine, it was dribble, 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 right? So they were dribbling all over the place, right? I just wanted them to dribble, and I wanted everyone to run up when we had the ball, and I wanted everyone to run back. And the parents were scratching their heads and saying, "What is this fella at?" <laughs> I thought this fella was supposed to be a great coach. He's a head case, right? They're dribbling up and down. They're going, but. It was explained to them why they were doing that, that we wanted them to develop as individuals first, right? And we don't want anyone talking on the line. And that included me at that age, right? We don't want anyone talking at all other than to say, well done. That was all we wanted. All we wanted, as they say in America, was the attaboys, mm-hmm. right? So the parents were not to say anything. And you know this, and you've seen this, and this has got a lot of coverage as well. You know, the quiet sideline and... You know, the Ajax training ground, everyone's seen the picture of the Ajax training ground, which says, parents, please stay quiet. You know, you don't, you don't want the parents shouting because what happens is, <laughs> I don't know if we've time for this, right? I, on the Golden courses, I used to talk about the parents relay, right? So, and th- this is the scenario that you see on grounds up and down the country. So, you're playing seven aside or whatever, right? So, our goalkeeper gets the ball and just by coincidence, his dad is standing behind his goal, so he keeper gets the ball and his dad is saying, give it out to the right, out to Johnny, you know. So he gives, he does what his dad says. He doesn't make his own decision. He does what his dad says, like a good boy that he is, right? So he gives it out to Johnny on the right. Now, just by coincidence, Johnny's dad happens to be on the right as well. So Johnny gets the ball and his dad tells him, play it down the line to Tommy, right? Now, you, you can guess the rest. Tommy's dad tells Tommy to cross it in. Jimmy's dad just by coincidence behind the other goal he tells Jimmy to shoot so they're playing a game again that isn't football that I call the parent relay so Mm -hmm. so it's the baton is passed from one parent to the other and the parents are making the decisions for the kids right now at the start of the season I would I would I would give the parents that example and I would say look this we must avoid this like the plague this cannot happen right we want the players to make mistakes I'll sort it out when I say I, I'm talking about whoever the coach is, I'll sort it out on Wednesday night or Friday night or Wednesday and Friday night if we're lucky. I'll sort it out. I don't need anyone to sort it out now. I want the players to play. Right? Now, the older you get, the less, obviously, the less freedom you're going to give players. But yeah. this is how I would deal with parents. And it's the old way. Look, it's it's not a new it's not a new thing. You must communicate with them. But while you're communicating is stay out. <laughs> stay out of the way, right? Yeah. Support your child. Do not instruct them. Because ultimately, in that scenario, the children get confused. Right? Because you, I'm telling them to do one thing. I'm telling them to dribble with the ball. And his dad is telling them to kick it down the field. So the kids are confused. So what happens when they get confused? They're afraid. Fear comes into it. And that's, again, in terms of playing creatively... The last thing we would, the last element that we want to be involved in playing creatively is fear. 
because mm. we don't want the players to be afraid to make mistakes. Mm. And in that scenario that I spoke about with, the, with Liam Scales' team, you know, we lost games. We lost games because everyone ran down the end when we were attacking. And the other teams, the clever teams, you know, the clever teams, they left the biggest guy standing on the edge of our box because there was no offside. So we'd give goals away like that, but that didn't matter because I wanted the players to learn to play a certain way. And results, and again, that's the other thing. And again, it's easier said than done. And I know it's easier said than done, but results are not what's important. At that age group, it was really, really important that every every child played the same amount of time until they come to the to the 11 side game. And then again, it's communicated to parents, their performance in training, their performance in games, their attitude around the club, all of that will be taken in consideration for whether they're going to play, how many minutes they're going to play at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Right? It depends on all these factors. Right? So they're not guaranteed you know, even playing time at that stage, once you, once you get to 11 aside. But again, the important point in terms of your question is the parents are told that. Okay. The parents know that. Mm-hmm. So once they know that, they're going in with their eyes open. They can't complain to you then further on down the line. You know, the usual thing. Why, why isn't he playing? Mm-hmm. And you turn around and say, well, he's not trying hard enough and trying. Everyone else is trying harder than him. That's why he's not playing. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask you about Roy Keane, but I'll, I'll, leave, that. Goes, yeah. I'll, leave, that, I'll leave that until the end. Yeah. One thing that I do want to ask before I get to that is we were doing, we did a series on uh, it's OTB Future and it was essentially the grassroots development of uh, PE, of football. Yeah, I heard of the PE ones, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and one of the key themes that came up with Imo O'Neill was uh, really good on was the lack of motor skills or the the development of motor skills within kids and it seems to be in the decline now. Have you noticed that as well with your, your work that, you know, the younger players don't seem to have the same motor skills as previous generations or is that a worry for you? I don't know, and it is the is the honest answer, right? Because, you know, I look back, now obviously, you know, PE teachers would be at the coalface, they would know that. But I look back when I was a kid and there was fellas who barely had the coordination to tie, tie their laces, they were falling over each other in class as well. Even though we spent all our time outside, right? Yeah. And we, we played football, but most of them, probably more importantly, we climbed. <laughs> we climbed trees and all that. This is, again, in terms of overall motor skills and development. That was very, very important. We put, we played, we played chasing games. The kids don't do all that now. Now I do. I do go into classes where, again, at one end of the scale is that player that I, I, I spoke to you about that can uh, that can beat everyone, and then at the other end there there are, there are kids who, who literally can't skip forward or skip sideways. You know. So uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know whether it's any different now than it ever was. Yeah. But yeah. I do acknowledge the importance of developing overall motor skills, right? Now, I would go against the grain a little bit. There's a famous guy, I'm sure in, in these conversations, you would have heard the name Isfan Bali, right, who developed the long-term development, long-term a- a- athlete development, uh, uh, pro- what, what, what would you call it, program, right? Mm-hmm. Now, he was saying they should play all different sports. They should, should play a throne sport or a hands-based sport. They should they should play um, a team baseball and so on and so on. Now I think if the coaches are clued in enough in your training in your warm up parts, you can have you can include those motor skills in it. 
Okay, you can have kids getting up and down off the ground, and you'll you'll find then the, the kids who are weak at that. You can you can do a little bit of correction of stuff like that. You can include all of that in, 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 as part of your training, but you know, who who what are we trying to develop? You know, ninety nine percent of the kids that we deal with want to play the game a little bit better. They want to learn some skills. Now, they might dream of Manchester United right? or ever, uh, you know, whatever that club is or Liverpool, whoever it is. But, you know, that's not really what they're about. They want to come down. They want to learn a little bit. They want to have fun with, with their with their uh, friends mm-hmm. and they want to get better. And they want to win some games as well. And we should never we should never lose sight of that fact. So how are these kids best served? You know, spending an awful lot of time working on their motor skills which might be necessary, are spending more time playing football. Yeah. You know, it, the motivation of the child must match the motivation of the coach. So if the, the coach wants to do all these things, which are great in theory, but the kid doesn't want to do it and the kid just wants to come and play, well, let's make that experience a better experience for them. Right. Yeah. Because playing, playing time and training is, is your main tool in terms of getting the kids to come back. <laughs> If they play, it's a win-win situation. If they play more, I think, right, and this is the ideas that I'm putting forward, if they play more in training, they will get better. If they play more in training, they will enjoy it more and they will come back for more training. So it's a win-win situation for coaches to base everything. Now, I'm not saying play matches all the time. You know, most most clubs, most clubs, well, it's probably different now because we'll, we'll be starting in the summer now because of the, the pandemic and that. But most clubs are hiring national tour pitches in the winter. Right? And most clubs only have an hour. Right? Yeah. They, they have an hour. Now, up in, I, I work with young kids, very young kids up in Enniscary. But we have a very, very simple plan for that. Right? We have a simple plan that the first 20 minutes is spent working on skills. So teaching them to turn, teaching them the moves, teaching them the dribbling skills, Whatever, whatever stage they're at, the next 20 minutes is spent on playing small games. Now, when I say small games, I'm talking about one-on-ones and two-on-twos to, again, develop to, again to develop these basic building blocks. And then the last 20 minutes is, is spent in games. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not rocket science. But with young kids, it doesn't have to be rocket science. This is, the, this is what, what, coaches, what coaches, the mistake that coaches make. Right, with young kids, the job of the coach is to simplify the game, not to complicate the game. The job of the youth coach is is a simplification of the choices that the players have when they step out on the field, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, there's loads that I haven't got time to go into, but I I would love to do it again if you no, have the opportunity. But no um, problem, and I'd love to talk. As you can see, I could talk about this for a little. <laughs> I might be able to talk a little longer on this subject, you know. Yeah, we we might get you back on to to further go into the the difference between you know your ordinary everyday kid and the elite as well, and yeah, how you how you and, tune and with that, is, right? And again, that word, everyone uses that word now. You cannot look at a session on the internet without someone talking about the terms elite, right, and high performance, right. I see this on. Facebook pages, on coaching groups, on websites that are for grassroots coaches. Mm-hmm. Like the name of the groups are grassroots coaching. And what they're putting up, I saw the other day, I saw on a grassroots coaching uh, webpage, I, I saw a webinar 
a, a tactical analysis of Pep Guardiola against Thomas Tuchel in the Manchester City Chelsea game, but, which is great, brilliant, fantastic. I'd love to watch it, right? But it's on a grassroots coaching page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, that just says it all. That yeah. says it all, you know. Let's finish with Roy Keane then. Ah, oh, good man, Roy. <laughs> because we have to, we have to get Roy Keane in. So oh, essentially, oh. you you were um, coaching in the fast course that it was previously there for players like him who were really good and they wanted to go and develop and they wanted yeah. to make a bit of money and it was essentially a government scheme to get young people getting paid to play football essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was Roy Keane like, uh, adolescent well, Roy Keane to work first with? Of, first of all, in, in, before I started on Roy Keane, right, it was a fantastic initiative and there are still false football FAI courses. Right? Now, John McGrath, who was the international manager at the time, the under-15, under-16 international manager, Joe was lucky that, that he had a foot in both camps. Joe worked for Foss, right, and he was the international team manager. So I, I couldn't talk about the Foss courses without paying you know, a compliment to Joe. Mm-hmm. It was Joe, because of his unique position between the two, he was able to set it up. So, and there are still false programs. Well, whatever it's called now, I don't know what false is called now, New Money. It's changed its name so often. But, you know, once once they got up and running, previous to, to Roy's course was a, a course for coaches. So we actually did two years for coaches first. And then Joe was pushing for this all the time to get it over the line for players. So so Roy was on the first players one, right? So we're, we're, we're on to Roy now again. Mm-hmm. After giving Joe his due, we're on to Roy. Okay, I'll tell you what he was like. And people ask me this all the time. And I'm sorry I have to give you a stock answer about it, right? He was he was so determined and he was so steely in his determination to do well, right? That my memory of him now, and again, it's, it's a while ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My memory wouldn't be too great now at this stage, right? I've started to reach that stage. But I always remember his determination and his ability to... He always wanted to work. You could see his strength of mind all the time. And I tell you what, we were new to the game in terms of full-time training back then, right? So the, the players, again, Foss, Foss came out of the construction industry and the construction industry was very much be in at half past eight, make sure you clock in, make sure you clock out. So we were in every single day training twice a day, okay? Which now we know is not a, it's not a recipe for success because what wasn't built into that was proper rest and regeneration. We, we, we were hammering the players. The players were absolutely, they were knackered, yeah. right? But again, to get, I know, I know you, you think I keep avoiding Roy Keane, but when the players had reached that stage, when there was an awful lot, right, of staleness and when there was an awful lot of tiredness around, my abiding memory of Roy Keane was that he was always working, right? He kept, he was able to keep that determination. Now, we know now from talking to him and and the, the how many books, is he, how many autobiographies has he written now? Like, he was so single-minded because he wanted to make it. But that was my memory of him too, right? Mm-hmm. Now, my other memory of him was, and again, this is the stock answer I give about him, right? Wherever you put him, he was able to do it. <laughs> Whatever you asked him to do, he would do it for you. He had that ability to step up no matter what. So the Roy Keane that went from Rockmount stepped into the Cove Ramblers team and just played the same way, 
right? Yeah. He stepped in, he went from our course, and then we went straight from the course. As you know, he went straight from our course to Nottingham Forest, right? And Roy Keane just played like Roy Keane. He just did the same thing. He played the same way. He went out and he just played the exact same way, right? And again, the same thing again. He, he stepped up from Nottingham Forest. He went into Manchester United team and he just played. He had such self-belief, right? And he had such such belief in his ability. And again, like I say, he had a steely determination, right? And you might, if you wanted to be unkind, you could say it, it, it was it was a one-eyed selfishness <laughs> that he thought of Roy. He wanted Roy to succeed, uh, but he he backed it up with the hard work. Yeah. Okay. Now, in terms of what he became, I could see the same Roy Keane shouting and roaring at the, at the Manchester United players as I saw him shouting and roaring at our lads, right? The same fellow who wanted to do it. And, you know, he was able to push people. And he, 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 was, he was a lot quieter then, but he was still in the dressing room with the lads. He was a strong personality and he, he, he would have been one of the leaders. And again, again, a stock answer I give you about that course. And I know you, you had Arnold Callahan on who wrote a book about him and spoke to all the lads that were on the course. And a lot of them would have concorded with what I'm going to tell you was that I didn't think Roy, in terms of ability, was the best player on that course. And a lot of the lads would say that because Tony Gorman and, and Pat Fenlon, I would have put, in terms of my judgment, which has been proved wrong, those two guys would have been better prepared, would have been, you know, would have been better players at that time. Now, both, yeah. of, them had great, both of them had great careers here. Like both of them, both sides of the border here. Right, very, very good players. But I would have said Roy would have been toured in the pecking order, pecking order there, you know. But like I said, and, and we know this now. Like, everyone knows this. Everyone acknowledges this now. And the, the proliferation now of sports psychologists are mental fitness trainers. It's the mental quality that gets the players to wear. It's not the physical quality. <laughs> we adore the physical quality. Everyone, everyone, everyone sort of, you know, like I said before, your granny can go down and see the best physical players, the fellow who can beat everyone. You don't have to be, I don't think you have to be highly qualified to be a football scout because your granny can go down and see the fellow who's going to go around, going away from England, you know, but it's the, it's the, uh, it's the mental qualities that decide whether players are going to make it at, at the really, really highest level. And again, the mental quality that Roy, I couldn't put my name on the actual quality I'm, I'm saying, but it was just that ability to step up. I'm sure huge self-belief, huge self-confidence. Yeah, and I, I, I think I think one thing as well about Roy that I like about Roy and people like about Roy now, he, he always was able to see through, for want of a better term, and I hate, I hate using in any way sort of bad language, you know, with you, but he was always able to see through the bullshit that was going on around. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> He, he, you know, he, he, he would, he would call out hypocrisy, and he, he'd have the odd sly remark to the, to the coaches and to Joe McGrath as the manager of the team and all that. You know, you could see that at an early age. He, he didn't, he, he hadn't got much time for that. He could see through all the excess and all the fun and all the circus that goes on around being a professional footballer. I think he could always see through that, and I think that helped him be the player that he was. And that was reflected, I think, on the way in the way that he played on the pitch. Because he was a no nonsense player, but when I say no nonsense, I always I think it was Teddy Sheridan. I don't know. It could have been one of the front players. Lately, has been quoted as saying, "His best server 
for one for want of a better term. In other words, the guy who got the ball up to him the most, up to his feet the most, and with the best quality on the pass was Roy Keane. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, it looked like a playing game. Everyone talks about his ability to get around the field and to dominate physically. It looked like a playing game, but someone who can play plainly that well, managers absolutely love that player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the players that managers want that can get on the field, do their job, do the simple things, but do the simple things really, really, really well. And that would be Roy Keane to me. Mm. You know, that apart from the physical commitment and his ability to dominate the people around him, both on his own team and the other team, I think in terms of just sculpting his game down to the basics of controlling the ball well and passing the ball well. He brought that to to, to a, a, a fantastic level, right? And then coupled with the other qualities as well, made him the player and the leader that he was as well. Yeah, and there's the famous Brian Clough uh, quote to Roy Keane. I think I'm going to butcher it. He wrote it in his book about his debut and Clough. The thing that he asked him was, can you control the ball? Can you pass yeah. it? Can you run with it? Yeah, and it was a yes to all yeah. three of that, and uh... and, and probably you know these these are all things you're you're only guessing because no one knows other than the, the guys that are there at the time. But I think that simple approach from Brian Clough would have been exactly what Roy Keane needed. He mm. would have, like I said, he would have been the player that exemplified that for 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 Clough. So the two of them were a great partnership, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Roy could have landed at a club where they were asking him to do different things. They could have asked him to be rotating in midfield, <laughs> as he spoke yeah. about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Rather than getting on the ball and using it well. And like I said, you know, these these are the players that the public don't see too don't actually appreciate as much as they probably should. But these are the players that coaches and managers really, really appreciate having in their team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roy Keane, he's, he's an interesting character, so it was great to get a bit of background on him as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Larry, it's been, uh, it's been brilliant having you on the show, and as I said, there's still tons that I, I could have gotten into tonight that I didn't have time to, so we might reschedule and, and do this again but, sometime. But I just uh, got a plug in for the book, Andy. Yeah, yeah, so it is uh, Let the Players Play yeah, the by name Larry of the book. Mahoney. Where can you get it? Right, the name of the book is Let the Players Play, but the, the uh, webpage for ordering the book, you can only get it on the webpage. It's bigpicturecoachingireland.com. Bigpicturecoachingireland.com. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I will put a link uh, on the YouTube of this. I'll put a link with the podcast as well. And it's bigpicturecoaching.com yeah. where people can get the, the book, Let the Players Play. Larry Mahoney, it's been brilliant having you on the show. Thanks very much for thanks, joining Thanks, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk to you. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Stephen Finn, who is a UFAA coach and part of the research and football group in the WIT. Stephen, thanks very much for joining me today. Pleasure to join you, Andy. So we're talking Jim McGuinness because there's been a lot of talk about, about Jim McGuinness over the last week or so. He is being linked with the Dundalk job, how true or otherwise those links actually are. But it has brought about this debate again that came about when Jim McGuinness got the job in the US and also when he was being linked with jobs in Ireland. Is he a spoofer who is simply getting linked with these roles because of who he is and what he's done within the GAA? 
or does he actually have a good football slash soccer brain and is he qualified to take on the big job? So you did something that a lot of people have not done. You watched Jim McGuinness when he was in charge of Charlotte and his Charlotte team in the US. So I suppose early findings or early context to his Charlotte independence career, how did you find his team? Well, the first thing to say is I can't stand the word spoofer. I think uh, I'm not having to go with you for using it, but I know people use that all the time. And usually this is based on essentially results. So if you win, you're a genius. If you don't win, uh, you're therefore inept. Um, What people don't take into account is the context of where uh, where a person is in relation to his team, as a coach, in relation to the players that they work with, in, in relation to the resources that they have available. And uh, essentially, my view is that, yes, you can't say that he was a success in Charlotte because the results are obvious. Uh, he had only one win. Um, but when I look at the context of the whole thing, there was an awful lot of a sense of he was operating one arm tied behind his back. Um, he arrived over there uh, in the middle of the American winter uh, and pre-season started with six players, uh, dreadful weather, monsoon-like conditions. So initially trying to establish his style of play or what he wanted to do uh, on, the, on the Charlotte independent squad was completely hamstrung you know you can't build a team around six players the usl is very like the league of Ireland. players are generally sign one-year contracts and the later you get appointed the harder it is to actually get in the players that you want and he essentially was new to the league and was relying upon the contacts he built up in america and the people already within the club they didn't build a particularly strong squad relative to the challenge that they were facing. And I don't believe that they assembled the type of players that he would have wanted uh, to work with based on everything that he said before he went in there. I heard him speak several times. I've always been fascinated by him as a coach. Uh, I think, you know, he was a fascinating player because he was so different. And then as a man, like if you read his book, you can see how he was, uh, he he overcame many personal obstacles and he decided to go back into education later in life. And what he achieved in GA was remarkable for me. Um, the decision to move into soccer was incredibly brave and leaves yourself open only to criticism if you fail. So he goes into, into Charlotte. I was interested straight away because it was so fascinating to see uh, see how he got on. Mm. And I just felt right from the very start, this was not going to go well. This was not going to be easy for him in any way, shape or form. Um, the big thing I believe is if you're going into another country, you have to really know that league intimately. If you look at uh, Bielsa before he went and took the Leeds job, he hadn't just watched every single Leeds game. He watched practically every game of every other team in the championship. So he was able to straight away say, well, I know how good my squad is relevant to the opposition. I don't think uh, Jim probably knew that simply because the players hadn't actually been signed. The six players that he had were actually decent 
enough. But were they amongst the top uh, top two or three players wise in in terms of the league? I don't really think so. Uh, one guy, Alex Martinez, who had played MLS, was number ten, very talented. Uh, but you know, was well, number ten, but was he really a number 10? You know, did he do all the things that you, like he was no Wes Hulan. Uh he, he, he couldn't, uh, you know, pick a hole in the tightest defence. But he had a lovely, he has a lovely range of passing and he's good in one-on-one dribbles. But, you know, he's kind of like a slow winger rather than an out-and-out number 10. But, you know, if he came into the league weren't, he'd be a very, very good player. Like, okay. So he was their star player. But after that, most of the players that were brought in didn't really fit what Jim had spoken about before, which was the Roger Schmidt high pressing game, what he had worked with in China. Uh, he talked about the physical intensity that you would get out of players. You know, none of that really happened because Charlotte just didn't sign that type of player. Mm. So further context to Jim McGuinness taking over at Charlotte is that it was quite a new club. It wasn't an established American club it was still quite young they were still trying to figure out whether they were going to get the uh, the contract for the MLS and become a, an MLS franchise and there was a lot going on in the background that probably we will find out as the club progresses and Jim McGuinness progresses but I suppose one of the things that is always leveled at Jim is that he hasn't done his time in the background of coaching but it, to me it seems that he has because I mean he worked in Celtic for a number of years you know, and initially it wasn't as a coaching role but eventually he did move into a coaching role for several years then he goes and teams up with Roger Schmidt moves to China takes a risk there again and then he gets his job in a small enough American club I mean it's not as if he was taking over Barcelona and skipping ahead of 20,000 people it was a small American club that he was taking over and taking a risk with so all of that panned together in the 14 games that he did take charge did it seem to you like this guy had figured out his footballing ideals? Yeah, I think he does. I think he's a very clear understanding of what he wants. Uh, I just don't believe that the players that he wanted and the style of players that he wanted were being recruited by the club. And I don't know, uh, you know, he wouldn't have necessarily been completely in charge of the recruitment uh, within the club because of the structures uh, within Charlotte. The former coach, Mike Jeffries, became the sporting director or technical director and was given the role of uh, of recruiting players while Jim was getting on the task of essentially getting them to play the way he wanted. But if you could imagine... Uh, from what Jim has said about uh, his time uh, with Roger Schmidt uh, and his beliefs on the game, he wanted to play a high pressing, high pressing game. But the forwards that they had, like his top scorer Dominic Adoro, uh, who was a very good player, uh, he was thirty three. Uh, There's a striker there, Jorge Herrera, thirty nine, a Colombian. Now this guy is absolutely fantastic, but a twenty nine year old Jorge Herrera could have played the game uh, the way Jim would have wanted. A 39-year-old, uh, you know, isn't going to be able to press to the same level for the uh, the amount of time that Jim would have wanted it. So the attacking players in particular uh, were s- slightly different in, in, in their attributes to what 
uh, I believe Jim would have wanted. And, you know, a lot of the work went and they brought in um, a couple of players uh, from different areas. There was a guy called Jackson who looked very good. He, he was young and uh, powerful. They got him on loan uh, from Colorado, I think. But he got injured very, very early and he looked like he could have been the answer to that high-pressing game. Um, they signed a young guy called Zane Jones from Schalke. Very, very fast, but uh, very inconsistent. He was only 18. I think maybe, you know, underage players can be very impressive within their uh, setting. But when you put them into the adult game, they can really just not perform. And it's not because they're not good enough. It's just because the adjustment to adult football is, is so big. It takes time. So those players, that never really hit the level that Jim would want wanted, in my view. The midfield had uh, nice ball players, but again, were they guys who really pushed, uh, you know, with that intensity in midfield to win the ball back high? I don't really think so. Um, so on that basis, I don't, don't think he necessarily ended up working with the type of players he wanted to really impose his preferred style of play. So I suppose as a manager, uh, if you have an out-and-out -out philosophy and you're saying, that's the way I want to play no matter what happens, but you don't have the players who fit that philosophy. Well, if you try and impose that on them and they can't do it, you're not mm -hmm. going to succeed. So you have to then try and adapt. Uh, and that's what I think he did. He, he changed formations quite a bit. They started off with 4-4-1-1 and he tried to read the back once or twice. Um, and sometimes I couldn't really get, when I looked at all the games, I couldn't really get what was the full... Uh, aim of some of the changes but this is where you don't really know what's going on in the background you don't know who's picked up a knock or uh, who's had an illness or uh, you know all that interpersonal stuff as well that could be going on in the background that you're not 100% sure around the decision making but the same 11 was very very rarely used so you couldn't say that he imposed his philosophy on the group in actuality I think he was trying to work out a philosophy that would have suited what he ended up working with. So yeah. that made it very difficult for him to succeed. And I actually watched a couple of the games myself. One of the things that surprised me, I suppose it's just because of who he is and maybe almost uh, placing the ideals that he had within GAA onto a football pitch. And I was surprised by the uh, defensive qualities of the team. They were quite mm. weak defensively. Yeah and especially from set pieces, especially from, I suppose, the controllables in which Jim was so aware of and so uh, brilliant at doing within GAA. Anything that he could control, they were all over. But mm -hmm. in, in, with Charlotte, it just didn't seem that they had that. Yeah, like some of the stuff that was just mind-boggling was uh, the goals that they conceded from wide areas. Like, it was remarkable, whether it was free kicks, corners or crosses, Every week you would feel that they were going to concede a goal from a wide area. They had three very tall and strong centre-backs who were fine dealing with balls straight on top of them, which they had to win one-on-one uh, -on -one headers. But once the ball went wide, I don't really feel that uh, they ever cracked being well-organised defending the ball from wide areas. One of the goals they conceded uh, against... Uh, Atlanta's second team was scored by John Gallagher, who's from Dundalk and had a loan spell at Aberdeen. He's a very, very good player, but he's five foot nine. He managed to get between the two centre backs and got his head on a on a cross. And uh, the two centre backs were like six foot three. 
Uh, actually, I think he got the head on it and it hit the crossbar and, and it was bundled into the net. But it was patently obvious that, you know, a little guy is managing to beat these giants in the air. Also, some of the goals were like comedy gold uh, players running into each other, um, which showed a sense of panic that I was kind of surprised with. But again, you know, a coach gets, uh, you know, penalised by the result, but sometimes it's an individual error which costs the whole team. Um, and sometimes that individual error can be from a referee. Uh, like in his very last game against uh, Swope Park Rangers, uh, Abdullah Mansai scored an absolutely fantastic free kick. But because Jorge Herrera was standing behind the wall, uh, not in the line of sight of the, the goalkeeper right away, the referee decided to list it out the goal. And you know, when you look at uh, the sliding doors moments, um, I remember when the final whistle blew in that game, thinking, you know, that could be the last match. But if they had won, would it have been the last match? Would it have bought them another week? Would it have bought them another two weeks? Would it have bought them the opportunity to bring in the next player or whatever that he wanted? Um, so the defending from Whiteers was very, very disappointing. One area where I did think they that he got uh, they must get credit for uh, the defender uh, Andrew Gutman, who's a really exciting left wing back who had went from America to Celtic, but then was loaned back to Charlotte. Very very good going forward, but was in my view very naive and erratic defensively initially. Um, but after several weeks, you could see that he had got much better defensively. So on a one by one one on one basis, I think Jim must take a lot of credit for for the work that he did with him and he ended up getting called into the US uh, senior international squad while still at Charlotte so obviously other people were noticing uh, that individual work had improved um, the goalkeepers was another issue too uh, Brandon Miller who was the regular keeper uh, w- would be hot and cold when he's hot he's very hot but like some of the goals uh, particularly some of the early goals that he conceded it was almost like diving with his hands not fully extended and, you know, uh, you'd be really frustrated as a manager that he didn't look like uh, he he was ready for the shot. Then he brought in Curtis Anderson, who was a young goalkeeper at Man City who had won the World uh, Under-17 Cup with uh, England and certainly had a degree of potential. Um, but again, you know, you throw a young guy in, you know, Shea Given, Gavin Bazunu, uh, teenagers as goalkeepers excel. Dicar Casillas, the same thing. Historically, Donnarumma, some teenage goalkeepers have no problem because of their personality and their attributes. Curtis Anderson, to me, again, some great saves, but in terms of that, managing his defence, communicating with people, organising things, I think he was a little bit of inexperience, and that probably meant that the team never was 100% sure of the relationship between the goalkeeper and the defence. Yeah. I suppose one of the key reasons that we're talking about Jim McGuinness here is because of who he is and what he's trying to do. And that's essentially switch codes from GA to soccer and become a, a, in his head and definitely in some of the things that he said, he wants to become a top level football coach. That's what he wants to do. And there are examples of people who, have not coached or not played at a high level, but gone into football and done quite well. Maurizio Sarri is an example of that. I mean, Jose Mourinho is an example of that. 
I, I don't think we we're talking about Jim McGuinness in the light that they're going to, that he's going to do that. But well, do you I'll think he has the potential to even just manage a top level club, be that League of Ireland or low England league, or even do you think he could go further than that from what you've seen? Well, I, I think he can be a very good coach. I, I find him a fascinating individual. Uh, anytime I've seen him talk, anytime I've heard him talk, whenever I spoke to him himself, he uh, oozes leadership personality. Um, and he has put a lot of work in. Um, I'm currently working on a book on literally those type of people, the, the coaches who have reached a high level without having a famous playing background. And, you know, Brendan Rodgers, an example. If you look at Brendan Rodgers, Brendan Rodgers didn't even play a game of organised football until he was 13 or 14 because of where he grew up. And, you know, because he was obviously a talented young player, he got signed by Reading, played for Northern Ireland underage, but then through a combination of injury and maybe a few other things, decided to go into coaching at a very young age. The problem, uh, and, he, and, he, and he served his time and developed as a coach in the background without the uh, the world watching him, and it's the same with Julian Nagelsmann or Andre Villas Boas or any of these uh, coaches who've gone on without having a playing background. Jim's problem was that his playing background, as in another sport, was so high profile. In essence, very few people have tried to do what he's done, certainly to to the level uh, that he has. Um, Clive Woodward, even like Clive Woodward, made the jump from football uh, to soccer but never managed a team or picked an 11 or uh, he went into more, his probably his relationship with Southampton was probably more uh, aligned to the type of sporting directors that we see now. And if Clyde Woodward decided to become a sporting director of a football club now, I don't think it would have even caused uh, half this amount of surprise uh, that it did back then. Mm -hmm. But Jim was a, like a fantastic GA player uh, and then became a fantastic GA coach. So I think there are some people who are who want him to fail. But in my view, he certainly has more than enough attributes to be successful, but it has to be in the right setting. So uh, if we look at Stephen Kenny is, is, to me, the two most interesting Irish coaches, as in Irish sports coaches over the last 20 years are Jimmy Guinness and Stephen Kenny. And Stephen like it was a very very good soccer player but only played like four league of Ireland games and then he he, did, he went to Brendan Rodgers route through Tallatown through uh, St. Pat's under 19s through Longford Town Bohemians and, and worked his way up to top and now he's the Ireland manager uh, but he hasn't had the he wasn't one of Ireland's greatest rugby players or one of Ireland's top hockey players or whatever uh, Jim has kind of like got to separate people's perception of him in one sport to just go and do what he wants in the sport that he's chosen. And he's done the hard yards. He, he went all the way back to uh, Kickstart 1 and the FAI courses. He, like people were sitting in there and, you know, people who are probably in charge of uh, their six-year-old child's uh, introduction to the game sitting next to a fella who's, you know, managed in front of 80,000 people. You know, that shows great humility. And he went into Celtic and, you know, let's be honest, soccer is very ruthless. So the pros would have been quick to, you know, stamp all over him if they sensed any sense of weakness. So he went in there, had to be humble, had to learn, had to uh, watch from the likes of Rogers, the likes of John Kennedy, um, 
and the other coaches at Celtic had over the years that he was there. And then, you know, he went, put himself out of comfort zone, went to China, gone to America. Like, if you think about the the personal sacrifices you would make to do that with a young family uh, to up, uproot your whole family, you know, they moved to Scotland, then he's gone to China, then they come back, then he's gone to America. I think they went to America with him. Like, huge amount of sacrifices to pursue something. So he's not doing it to satisfy his ego. He's doing it mm. because he wants to be good. And I honestly believe that in the right environment, he would be good. And when I make the comparison to Stephen Kenny, Stephen Kenny, when he walked in the door at Dundalk, he had Chris Shields and John Mountney and no other players. But what he had was an intimate knowledge of the League of Ireland and he knew who he wanted to bring into Dundalk and he knew that he'd seen enough of the personalities to know that they would be the right kind of people to work with so the likes of Dane Massey or Stephen O'Donnell uh, and the other players Patrick Huben they all were the right fit for the right system for the right manager and the personality traits Jim needs that Jim will be better off in my view being appointed as a manager of someone next season so, uh, you know, if somebody, if, if a club anywhere said, right, when we kick off our first game of next season in March, whether it's the League of Ireland or another summer league, uh, Scandinavia, uh, America, wherever, uh, go and do what you want. Get the guys that you want. I feel that wherever he would go, he would certainly be much more successful than Charlotte was. And then we'll have an understanding of the the next level of, of being a manager, which is essentially you prepare for the game, you have your tactics, you have the players really well drilled, you have everything set up, and then the opposition does something unexpected. Or you're up against a tactical genius. Like some some in, in Italy, you know, the managers there uh, are used to changing formations two or three times in the game and the players are used to that. So like if... If Jim came up against a wily Italian coach, uh, then we'd find out, well, has he got the capacity to react during the course of a game to make the right changes? We know that he has that in GEA, but that's the game that he's played his whole life and he's managed intimately. The mm. question is, when the challenge gets to that level, uh, can he do it in soccer? I think when it arrives, he will be, but I don't, think he's at that moment exactly yet okay yeah i think i think everybody would like to see him get a crack at a at a job for more than a year to see how he gets on gets on because let's face it like he's he's box office essentially that's what he is and it'd be very interesting to see what happens with his career in football going down the line stephen finn thanks very much for joining me today no problem Andy. team 33 this is OTB Sports Radio. So that's all we have time for on this evening's Team 33. Thanks to you as ever for listening. If you want to listen back to that show or any of the Team 33s, you can get them in the OTB Podcast Network. The best place to get that is the OTB app, which you can download in the App Store or Google Play. You can watch, you can read, you can listen to all the off-the-ball stuff, including Team 33. It's very handy and it's a very good app as well. I'd highly recommend downloading in your app store back again in the usual places next week but until then Ewa Slangofall August take it away Johan Bye.